Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Today, celebration and representation. For many people, wedding plans were revised or postponed after the pandemic hit. The Atlanta Bridal Extravaganza was an enormous in-person event for those planning nuptials. We'll hear about moving to a virtual format for this year's show. Richard Blanco was the youngest poet as well as the first Latino, the first immigrant and the first gay person to serve as inaugural poet. That was for President Obama's second inauguration. We'll listen back to an interview from last year after the release of Blanco's book, How to Love a Country. First, confronting a grave issue in our country with humor. Dick Gregory, Richard Pryor, Dave Chappelle, W. Kamau Bell. There is a rich history of black comedians addressing racial injustice. Mark Kendall is among them. The Atlanta-based comic and improv artist has released online videos addressing systemic racism in America. He joins us now. Mark, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great to talk to you, Lois. Thank you. Oh, as always. Now, there's local appeal for the first of your video releases. How would you describe if Marta came to Cobb County? (laughs) <laughs> I think it would be great. But um, in the sketch, we imagine a world in which several Black guys plan on how they're going to rob pianos from people's homes on foot. Yeah. <laughs> pianos on foot. Right. Yeah. Ro- robbing people's pianos. Yeah. And all the while taking public transportation. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The humor is exaggerated it's clever, it's everything you expect satire to be. The topic is not so funny, 
The expansion of MARTA to Cobb County and beyond has been brought up in many Georgia legislative sessions to narrow avail. Why did you want to release this video now, Mark? So I have been working a lot with uh, Atlanta filmmaker Bill Worley. And at the beginning of this year, we had made plans to release you know, comedy videos on a regular basis. And the MARTA video was one that we had shot uh, earlier this year, I think it was perhaps March 1st. And then, you know, not even two weeks later, everything changed with the pandemic and uh, COVID-19. And so we had actually had the sketch shot and edited for a number of months, but just with the way things were, it, we just chose not to release it. But then after being in quarantine for a while and then also seeing the conversations that were starting to emerge about uh, race, racial justice, um, the way we police black people, um, then it felt more appropriate to release the sketch. And, um, and so that's how it came to be. Mm. Before we get to your second release, both of the videos are based on your one man Dad's Garage show, The Magic Negro, and Other Blackness. This show had legs, as the expression goes. You took it to the Alliance Theater and then performed The Magic Negro in other major U.S. cities. What is that show about? The Magic Negro and Other Blackness is uh, my one-person sketch show that explores the representation of Black men in the media and uh, uses comedy and satire to uh, look at uh, several images that we see in the media a lot. And again, earlier this year, when talking with uh, Bill Worley, who's been really great at helping me take these pieces that were once on stage into video, we wanted to try to have, find ways to t keep the same tone that was on stage uh, while also taking advantage of the medium of video to explore new things. Uh, and so Bill is an excellent cinematographer as well as an editor. And he's been also, he's been so great about bringing in amazing collaborators as well uh, to help us make these videos what they are. Mm. Now, there's a very different tone in your second release. This video is serious, fiercely so. It is age-restricted, and there's a trigger warning for language. Would you take us through your writing, Green Eggs, and the N-word? Yes, of course. So this piece uh, was the first piece that I wrote for my one-person show like year years ago. So it was the first one that, that I did. And so I've you know been performing this piece for quite some time on stage. Uh, however, when it came time to adapt it to video, I wanted to make it a little bit more clear because I couldn't be in the room with people as I performed it for them, if that makes any sense. Uh, so again, going back to, with the help of Bill Worley and Jenny Wentling, uh, who did art direction for us, and Haddon Keim, who did music and sound design for us, we were able to pull images of uh, things that were happening in the news, or are happening in the news, uh, as well as uh, Jenny's excellent art direction to evoke 
the feeling of reading Rainbow, LeVar Burton's show from back in the 80s and the 90s, uh, as well as Haddon's um, composing and music to also evoke certain emotions that might otherwise be missed if, you know, I'm not able to there to perform it uh, live for you in the room. But it's an exploration of the N-word and the attention that we give it, the way it's treated. But also, I think something that the piece is trying to say is beyond just words, what other things are happening systemically, you know, that are also oppressing people. And I think the piece is perhaps also reminding folks not to forget those other things that also have a huge impact, even if that word is not necessarily being said all the time. Mm. Dick Gregory once said, it should never be called the N-word because how do you talk about a swastika by using another term? And I, I understand the power and the comparison he was making. Using the N-word and the takeaway is you shouldn't use the N-word. And I would like to think the actual word shouldn't be used. But what is it about when it's reduced to this sanitized reference to the N-word? Does that make sense, Mark? I think so. And I guess, you know, while I may not have like a super clear answer for it, I think that's why I explore using the word in the sketch, you know? And I try to do some side-by-side -side comparisons where I say the N-word, I say the actual word, but then I also take audio clips of people saying things that may not be the N-word, but, you know, in my opinion, they are still doing just as much damage. And so I guess, you know, the piece is sort of offering up several questions about the power of the word versus like our actions and how we can be doing both at the same time or perhaps one or the other, uh, but they are all deserving of our attention uh, and change. Mm. I thought you made this video a few weeks ago. It is a tragic reminder of how ongoing this issue has been, this injustice that this was originally part of your Magic Negro show. Yes, well, there were significant updates that were done to both the Marta piece and the Green Eggs and Ham piece, where the core of it is definitely still the same, but definitely updated certain lines and things like that to make it feel more now and to make sure that I was referencing what was going on right now. And so that was definitely something that was important to uh, Bill and myself as we were making these videos. Mark, having had the pleasure of seeing you perform many times, I've never seen you express rage, which is perfectly appropriate in this video. Have you performed serious work before? Yes, for sure. And um, I think it's, you know, something that it's an interesting thing when you mention rage because there, I feel like there are a lot of ways to express it, you know. So there are times that I've performed where I may have been, you know, smiling, but the rage is definitely there. And actually, I've been reading this book, and um, in the book, it kind of talks about anger is not necessarily being like a bad feeling, but more so like it's letting you know that of a certain boundary you might have. And I feel like a lot of the pieces from The Magic Negro, and as well as some of the videos that we've been putting out, something that I think perhaps comes up is 
you're, you're talking about things that are displeasing, but you also feel a responsibility to be funny, you know, because you are putting it in the comedy category. But at the same time as a performer, I'm, I'm, I try to be aware of like how I use anger, I guess, and how I choose to portray it and trying to be more comfortable with being okay and how I express that. And so I guess like going, going forward, that's something that I try to be more aware of and I try to push myself to uh, express in ways that are productive. Well, in this instance, in that video, rage is perfectly understandable. And as an actor, you make it palpable for the audience. What feedback have you received from each of these videos? It's been positive. People have enjoyed them. People have liked them. Uh, something that I guess has been surprising. Uh, well, I mean, the feedback has been, uh, you know, people enjoy them. They think they're funny. They, they really appreciate the um, filmmaking from Bill and, um, and the acting, you know, from other characters like Ricky, who's in the sketch, as well as like Andre and his uh, handwork by the uh, Marta poster board that Jenny did. And so people have been loving it from like a filmmaking aspect, but I guess something that they, the comments that they've also appreciated has been, you know, the specificity of the pieces and how they are specific to Atlanta. And that's something I was kind of surprised by. So that's been cool to see. Thinking about virtual performance, the only platform open during the pandemic, as a comedian and actor, what is it like to perform without a live audience? It's difficult. I do a star bar every Monday uh, virtually. Uh, if you go to twitchtv.com slash Rodney Presents, every Monday at 9.30, I'm on, I'm on star bar. And that's like a virtual stand-up show. And you don't really get a lot of feedback with the exception of maybe the couple people that are on the Zoom call. And it's still comedy, but it's not quite doing stand-up. So it's like a new challenge. And then, you know, with doing the videos and reference to the videos, it's also very different, not really having an audience. So I try to make sure that I send the script or cuts of the videos, Bill and I both, to um, people that we know and trust for feedback. And that's kind of how we've been doing it. But it's a very different feeling. It's very different. Oh, yeah, because performers are energized by an audience, whether actors or musicians or dancers. That's the glory of live performance, and it's not the same on screen. Now, there's an exciting announcement. This week, you will release a third video called A LeBron Solution for Confederate Monuments. Yes. Having had the pleasure and hilarity of previewing this video, we were wondering if you could give our listeners a sneak preview of what the video will address. Absolutely. So the video addresses Confederate statues that are still standing. And I play a fictional character named Craig, and you're watching his commercial. And he's pitching you on a solution for these Confederate monuments. And so the idea is that Craig had LeBron James statues made years ago because he thought he was gonna win the finals in a year that he ended up losing. And so he, he wasn't able to like unload these statues on anybody, but then he sees what's been happening with the Confederate monuments in a, you know, this summer a renewed conversation around them. And so his suggestion is 
that you keep the Confederate statues exactly where they are, but then you build a bigger statue above it of LeBron James dunking on him. And so uh, we were able to collaborate with Chris Nick, who's a very gifted special effects person, and he was able to do the special effects for us, and he was, he was amazing. How can I be so confident that people will go for something as crazy as this just to keep up some statues honoring traitors? It's simple. This is America, where we value white people's emotions over everything else. A Confederate statue standing on its own is a big thumbs up to racism, but a Confederate statue with LeBron James dunking on it? That's my movie pitch for Space Jam 3. Oh, it is brilliant. And I have to tell you, Mark, we laughed throughout. I mean, there is not a moment of that video that is not hilarious. I know you're going to get a great response from the public. The humorist and writer Mary Hirsch once said, humor is a rubber sword. It allows you to make a point without drawing blood. Why is comedy an effective way to express your thoughts and feelings about the tragedy of racial injustice? Mm -hmm. You know, I think comedy is really helpful for a number of reasons. I mean, when I think about Confederate monuments, you know, in particular, I feel like they're being used to tell a story so that people have this emotional connection, you know, to the Confederacy. So then they grow up with those images and those stories and they kind of hold on to these racist beliefs, you know? And I feel like that's how a lot of us learn things is through stories, it's through narratives, it's through images and things like that. The thing that's nice about comedy is that you can go into a room or show someone a video, I guess in this case, to someone that has a view that maybe doesn't match up with your own, or you could show a video to a racist. And the thing that is cool about comedy is that if you can get them to laugh, usually laughter comes from a place of understanding, and those are perhaps maybe the beginning steps of someone you know, changing their mind. And not that my objective is to change people's minds per se, but as a means of having a conversation or starting conversations, I think that it's, it's useful. I think through something like comedy, it's just a powerful means of expression to communicate how you feel on something that, to someone that may not otherwise understand it. Atlanta-based comedian, actor, and Dad's Garage Ensemble member, Mark Kendall. You can find Mark's videos on his Facebook page, and YouTube channel. A link to those videos will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a bridal extravaganza online. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Many soon-to-be-married couples have had to reconsider or postpone their wedding plans due to the COVID-19 pandemic in order to adjust to the current climate. Bridal extravaganza of Atlanta has changed the semi-annual in-person event to a week-long virtual offering. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the founder, Shelley Dance, about how they've adapted to the new platform. Here's Shelley describing the original event. We usually bring in, oh, around a thousand people that have all that all come together and there's all these beautiful Instagram moments and and VIP experiences and gifts and all these things that normally happen when we're not dealing with a pandemic. (laughs) And so here we are in this unique situation where we wanted to be able to still connect brides and vendors, but needed to think about a new way to do it. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, brides and grooms have had to completely change their original plans. Uh, what kind of advice or tips have you given to couples who have had to opt for more of an elopement package instead? Oh, I know it's so hard and it's so confusing for so many people because nobody knows when this is all going to end or change or what, what to do. And so it's just a, such an unusual circumstance right now. Some of them are putting off their weddings, you know, postponing them to next year. Some of them are, are doing a smaller wedding and then maybe they'll do a celebration at, a, at another time. You know, so I think everyone's in a different place on how they want to handle their wedding. I think I read somewhere that there was about 60,000 weddings right now that are on hold around here that are, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. A lot of brides that are and grooms that are out there trying to figure out this next step. And um, hopefully I can help them a little bit with that, with what we're trying to do this month. Yeah, it's, it's just heartbreaking. I got married three years ago in April, and so I couldn't imagine you know, once you planned out every single thing and every detail to just scrap it and have to start from the beginning. And I'm guessing that vendors have had to really adapt to this as well and probably opt for more elopement packages. How have you seen vendors adapting to this? That's a great question. I am blown away by the creativity of these vendors. They have really taken this time to really think outside the box. Like, for example, one of my photo booth vendors has a virtual photo booth where, say, grandma can't fly in for the wedding. She can actually be a cameo feature in the bride and groom picture (laughs) and texted or emailed to them. I mean, there's all these fun things that people are coming up with. Caterers are coming up with all kinds of things where instead of it being a buffet, you know, or or past hors d'oeuvres that are, everyone's touching each other's food. It might be more individual portions of each of the items or, or it's plated in, you know, beautiful packaging so it can still be safe and healthy for the guests. You know, people are talking about different ways to even brand and put logos on their hand sanitizer. I mean, it is all (laughs) 
over, <laughs> it's all over the map. But the goal is that they really want to try to figure out how to still make it work. So the vendors are being creative. They're definitely being creative. So because the bridal extravaganza is very hands-on before the coronavirus pandemic and very physically interactive experience, how are you adapting this for the virtual platform? Yeah, so that was a big change. I think that one of the things that when we were looking at could this be virtual, it was trying to figure out how it can still be beautiful and interactive and fun for the brides and not just a online directory. And so I think we've really come up with a lot of creative ideas to do that. One, when the brides enter the virtual experience, first of all, it's taking place over a week so they can participate in different inspiration sessions, which will be on Zoom during the week, whether it's in the evening or at lunchtime, sessions on how to plan a small wedding or out-of-the-box ideas like we talked about during this crazy time or how to find a wedding dress that's best for you. All different kinds of topics that they can participate in through these different Zoom inspiration sessions with the vendors. They can check out live entertainment from DJs and cello players and saxophone players and different entertainers that they may want for their weddings. They can check them out. They can also online try out that virtual photo booth or upload their photo to win a digital caricature of their bride and groom photo or get a signature drink recipe. So there's a lot of things that the brides are going to get to do during the week, but most importantly, they're going to get to check out all these different vendors that they may not know about, you know, and see photos and videos and get a bridal show special and all kinds of information about these vendors during the week. Oh, that's so exciting. How are the couples meeting these vendors? What platform are you using? Zoom, Twitch? How are you doing this? Well, so part of it is online through our website that we have created from scratch for these brides and vendors to connect. And then each night and at lunchtime, there are the Zoom sessions where they're going to get to see the different vendors and interact with them. And then also on the first day of the show, we're doing a VIP curbside pickup experience for the brides to actually pick up cake tastings and flowers and gifts that they can actually take home. Some of the things that are part of the fun of an actual bridal show, they'll get to experience by getting to take home some of these items. How did you start these partnerships with the people that will be providing these tastings? Were these vendors that you've worked with when it was a physical Atlanta bridal extravaganza? Or have you added on even more people since this? Some of them have been a part of bridal extravaganza for years, and some of them are brand new vendors or are brand new to bridal extravaganza. So it's a great way to get to check out a whole bunch of vendors, just like for a regular bridal show. Part of the fun is, you know, it's easy to look up vendors online or Instagram or all the different ways people are meeting vendors, but to get the connection and meet vendors is a part of the, you know, appeal and joy of going to a bridal show to feel special and have these vendors really giving you the VIP treatment. And so the fact that we're able to do that a little bit through this curbside experience and these online sessions. I think we're, you know, trying to make it them to still feel special. It's a fun time for these brides. And so we want them to, to get these experiences. No, oh, it's definitely a really neat 
idea with still keeping your social distance, but the brides are actually getting physical items that they can sample and choose from. That's right. Before each panel discussion, as you were talking about, an entertainer will perform virtually. This is something new that hasn't happened in past Atlanta bridal extravaganza events. How did you come up with this idea? Well, part of it was there's a lot of sitting on your computer and doing things and that, you know, everyone's doing now working from home or however it may be. And we want it to be fun. And so when they're logging onto the calls, it's much more fun to log on and see entertainment than just talking the whole time. So, so I think it helps to, it helps add to the experience and it gives them a chance to check out these entertainers that back to where I was saying that it's nice to make that personal connection. This is a way for them to actually see the DJ or the cello player in action and say, Ooh, this might be something I might really want for my wedding. So it's new. And I think that this actually could be something beyond Corona that this, this virtual experience maybe something obviously I really want the live bridal shows to come back they're so much fun but this virtual experience may just may be another way for people to shop for their wedding yeah can you talk about some of the prizes that brides and grooms can win so glad you asked that everyone who all the brides get to enter to win we have an ultimate wedding giveaway where they have they get to choose the prize they want to try to win, whether it's tuxedos, a wedding dress, wedding cake, photographer, all the different elements of a wedding that they get to pick their prize that they want to try to win. Plus, they also get to try to win the honeymoon giveaway, which this year is to Club Med. There's four different locations of Club Med that they can choose from. And, you know, and that's for whenever they're able to travel. So they don't have to worry about the timing of that. But every time the brides visit different rooms to see the different vendors and every room they exit, they get another entry to pick which prize they want to win. And every Zoom session they participate in, they get to pick which prize they want to try to win. So there's a lot of ways to win these prizes. Talking about the Zoom sessions, can you discuss some of the topics vendors and experts will be going over in these nightly Zoom panel discussions? Some of them are more on, you know, tips and tricks for planning your wedding or how to, you know, keep calm while you're planning your wedding. Some some of them are very, you know, straightforward, easy topics on helping them with, with the planning process. And then some of them are more specific, like a wedding salon, a bridal salon is doing a session on how to pick a dress that flatters your figure and make and, and matches your style. We have a session on how to plan an intimate wedding for those um, brides now interested in doing a small wedding. We're having a session on uh, a lot of those vendors that have come up with a lot of these out of the box ideas on planning a wedding during this pandemic. We're gonna discuss that. I think that'll be a really popular one. I think that that's gonna be really interesting for them too hear some of these ideas and be able to see how it can be done. And then on the first night of the show on the July 19th, there's a launch party where 
um, you know, we'll have the DJ, we're going to have the entertainment, and we're going to walk through the brides all the ways they can participate during the week. So it's not so overwhelming and they can see all the ways they can get involved and all, so they don't miss out on any of the activities that are going to be going on during the week. I kind of think it's like a cruise. When you go on a cruise and they give you those planners that lay on your bed every night, I don't know if you've been on one, but it shows you like the highlights of the next day and the week. We want it to feel like that where every day they could look into seeing what kind of things there are to do. Can participants ask questions during these Zoom discussions? Yes. So one of the best things is that they actually can do this in their pajamas because they'll, we, we won't see them, but they can see the vendors and they can chat in questions. So it's the best of both worlds that they can participate, but they don't have to um, worry about getting all gussied up for the call. They can, <laughs> they can sit back and make their signature drink and relax and then chat in the questions, which we would love for them to do. Yeah. They don't have to put on makeup in order to ask a That's question. Right. That's right. <laughs> it's definitely been a change for Corona. People are much more comfortable at home now. Like you said, the bridal extravaganza every year usually brings in around a thousand people or more guests. How many people do you expect to attend this virtual five-day event? From the 1,000 people that we usually have, you know, about 400 or so of them are brides. And then they usually bring in, you know, their fiance or bridesmaids or their mother or different people that are that are coming along for the ride to, you know, enjoy, have fun. So my guess is that for this experience, it'll probably be more of the brides and grooms that are registering, but they can, you know, join in with their mom or their bridesmaid or anyone else for the call. So um, I'm anticipating that the numbers are going to be similar to our bridal numbers for the online version because of the different experience. So can brides from different states register as well? That's right. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the good news is that, well, number one, vendors travel, but number two, there's so much good information, regardless of where you are, it can help you no matter where you are in planning your wedding to really get this good advice. Because these vendors are experts in this field and they can really give brides advice no matter where they are. Shelley Dance is the producer of Bridal Extravaganza of Atlanta. The upcoming virtual show will be held at the Atlanta Wedding Connection website from July 19th through the 24th. More information can be found on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. A poet could hardly ask for a more visible podium than a presidential inauguration. That's where Richard Blanco found himself in January of 2013 at President Barack Obama's second inaugural. The poem he wrote for the inauguration, Blanco's One Today, garnered him immediate attention. He is the youngest poet, as well as the first Latino, the first immigrant, and the first gay person to serve as the inaugural poet. I spoke with Richard Blanco in 2019 when his book, How to Love a Country, was released. We began by discussing how the sudden visibility of the inauguration affected his career. 
I mean, the impact is just across the board in every facet of my life. Um, on a very personal note, you know, that moment uh, just felt like this sort of having finally have a, a place at the American, at the proverbial American table in some ways. I, being Cuban-American and gay, I always felt I wasn't really quite sure that I was part of that American narrative that I saw on, you know, the Brady Bunch and the TV shows. So that was uh, that was beautiful in that sense, and, and to be able to be honored in that way, but also uh, to represent so many people like myself that probably have felt not part of the narrative or on the margins of that narrative. So that was a beautiful, beautiful gift of the inauguration. Aside from that, in terms of my career and in terms of writing itself, it changed. Um, well, obviously, you can't imagine a career. I mean, I'm, it's been over six years, and I'm still travel 70% of my time uh, doing lectures, readings, workshops, keynotes, and whatnot. So it really was a game changer. But uh, it also changed what I write about um, or gave me permission to write about uh, to write about things I had never written about before. I mean, my concerns were always about home and place and identity and belonging. But more from a sort of an, an autobiographical sphere and having such a public moment, such a public role, and uh, uh, as is the inauguration, I kind of stepped into the shoes of, uh, you know, the civic role of the poet, you know, the poet that's uh, uh, a little more socially conscious. And that's what my book is about. It's called How to Love a Country. And it really deals with all the issues that affect us collectively, mm -hmm. um, which include me, of course, uh, but mm -hmm. thinking about how, what is the, you know, sort of more of the poetry of the we than the poetry of the I. So that uh, the inauguration gave me also sort of a new, a new direction for my writing, which was also a wonderful gift. Well, clearly, President Obama thought this story, your story, is as American as everyone else's stories, and therefore important to showcase. You mentioned How to Love a Country, your book. Would you read one of the poems that appears specifically complaint of El Rio Grande. Sure, sure, I'd love to. Um, this is a poem, of course, uh, as you can imagine uh, from the title, uh, deals with uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, it's, uh, and I was uh, trying to think about how to uh, sort of approach uh, this topic, this uh, social political issue that's been going around since I was a kid, right? Um, and so I decided that artistically I would speak in the voice of the river, uh, sort of the river uh, sh spreading blame evenly on all humanity for the absurdity of borders and uh, and thinking about how we sort of divide the world and um, and ourselves. And, and when we really think about the U.S.-Mexican border, if there is a border, um, it's really about, you know, 800 miles wide. This is a region that has really uh, of people that have shared have a shared history and culture and whatnot. And so this this absurdity of how you know you cross some imaginary line or, or you cross a river and suddenly you're in this whole other place and a whole other concept of a uh, uh, cultural concept or whatnot. When in reality, we know that borders aren't that neat. So yes, this is in the voice of the river. Complaint of El Rio Grande. I was meant for all things to meet, to make the clouds pause in the mirror of my waters, to be home to fallen rain that finds its way to me, to turn eons of loveless rock into lovesick pebbles and carry them as humble gifts back to the sea which brings life back to me. 
I felt the sun flare, praised each star flocked about the moon long before you did. I breathed air you'll never breathe, listened to songbirds before you could speak their names, before you dug your oars into me, before you created the gods that created you. Then countries, your invention, maps jigsawing the world into colored shapes, caged in bold lines to say you're here, not there, you're this, not that, to say yellow isn't red, red isn't black, black, not white, to say mine, not ours, to say war, and believe life's worth is relative. You named me, Big River, drew me, blue thick to divide to say spick and yankee to say wetback and gringo you split me in two half of me us the rest them but i wasn't meant to drown children hear mother's cries never meant to be your geography a line a border a murderer i was meant for all things to meet the mirrored clouds and suns tingle bird songs and the quiet moon the wind and its dust, the rush of mountain rain, and us. Blood that runs in you is water flowing in me. Both life and the truth we know, we know. To be one in one another. Oh, that poem feels so immediate. And yet, so timeless. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, and, and I think that's why I, I chose. You know, I chose to speak in the rivers. The river, um, you know, river has no owner. There's no deed, and so um, borders, in the end, um, you know, are uh, <laughs> in a way. Let's be honest. There, there. A lot of borders are maintained in a way to maintain social political power, right? Um, <laughs> to maintain wealth and and whatnot. So. I kind of wanted the river to speak in that in that immediacy, right? It's very powerful. How would you characterize the work that makes up how to love a country? Well, um, it's a it's a mosaic of three kinds of poems. Um, one was from an old, older project, which was a fine press book, uh, and a collaboration with the photographs of Jacob Hessler, and it was twelve poems, twelve photographs, and on the theme of borders, uh, all kinds of borders, uh, not just physical borders, but psychological borders, borders of uh, socioeconomics, uh, um, incarceration, and so and so. There's a lot of those poems that speak directly to the um, sort of really uh, core social political issues that we're still dealing with, um, including, of course, race and gender and all the rest. Um, and then there's a, a third of it is has to do with a lot of the commissioned or occasional poems that I've been writing throughout the last six years. For example, uh, Freedom to Marry poem, which is called um, Until We Could, which was commissioned by Freedom to Marry and was uh, produced as a short film uh, poem that I wrote for uh, Silicon Valley for the Tech Awards, um, a poem that I wrote for the reopening of the U.S. Embassy in, in Havana, Cuba, that I was asked to write and read. And so they also have sort of more of a political, uh, social political angle, but they're also uh, they're also tied to occasions or tied to co uh, sort of certain moments. The Pulse shooting, uh, the Pulse tragedy poem, uh, the more recent uh, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas or Parkland shooting. So those are those poems that I've been writing on my 
known as, again, thinking about my civic duty as a poet to bring to the table of the conversation that poetry can can initiate, right, or the dialogue that poetry can initiate. And then the third of the poems, because I wanted them also to ground it, I didn't want to run away from my own autobiography, are some of those same issues, but grounded in more personal autobiographical story or narrative, right? One example being a poem that was published in the uh, New Yorker about my father, and it's called My Father in English, and deals with his, his struggles with learning English and his trouble, struggles with coming to this country and whatnot, and his triumph, um, and also his his uh, his sort of sense of loss as well. So, so there's a slew of those poems. But ultimately, uh, as the title uh, suggests, "How to Love a Country" is really is is a statement, and it's also a question mark because at the end of the day, all, every poem is sort of struggling to uh, struggling or celebrating, or maybe those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, on what is country and how do we engage with it and how do we have a conversation with some of the things that are happening or have happened in our past? How do we uh, dive into our history to learn our present? Um, how do we um, personally and both collectively uh, deal with this idea of nationhood, right? So mm. so in general, it's that, it's, um, it's that kind of book. The central question is ultimately, who are we as Americans, and how do we belong, and how do we connect, and and to to individually to our country, and also collectively as a people. When you spoke with Terry Gross on Fresh Air in 2013, you talked about your relationship with America, and how complicated that relationship is for immigrants and children of immigrants. A lot has happened in this country since then, and I'm sure your feelings have evolved as well. Would you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's been, you know, obviously an evolution of, or not evolution, but sort of different phases. Um, of course, growing up as a child of immigrants, I think there's a kind of a, a kind of misunderstanding that that children of immigrants immediately embrace their given culture. And the reality, of, I think in most cases, certainly in mine, is that really it was a process of a uh, sort of a cultural coming of age, right? Because whatever your parents do, if they, they're dancing salsa, you want to listen to ACDC. If they're doing this, you want, if they're doing X, you want to do Y. This is just mm-hmm. sort of a general, uh, a, a sort of a, a more natural sort of response to running away from what your parents represent, right? But all the while, this is imprinting in you, right, and, and be- becoming part of your makeup. So, um, you know, in my early 20s, um, I hit that big wall, that big existential wall of, holy moly, where am I from? And in order to know where I'm going, right? That big mm-hmm. question that hits us. And so actually that's when I started writing and started really discovering and appreciating and diving into and investigating all my Cuban heritage and roots, including my family. I had a huge, huge, huge family that was still in Cuba that I had never seen. So I became very uh, connected to Cuba in that way and sort of became sort of then anti-American in a way. I was like, this is my real cultural roots. This is where I belong. And, you know, history has 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 dealt me these cards um and then um in a way i went to cuba i went to cuba a few times and though it filled in a lot of blanks and answered a lot of questions there was still half of me that was very american right i grew up here i arrived here when i was 45 days old to united states so i 
also sort of felt I needed to investigate the quintessential America that I thought was the only and the one and only American narrative, which was again like the you know the Brady Bunch or the Leave It to Beaver and this world that I had never seen because growing up in Miami is so culturally isolated and so monolithic. Uh, I mean, ninety percent of my schoolmates were Cuban and and with parents and like my parents with all very similar stories. So America was also sort of this mythic place as was the Cuba that I didn't know. So I moved up to Hartford and taught at uh, Central Connecticut State University and sort of explored what that what what was what, what was that America that that fantasy or that TV version that I thought really existed and of course found out that it didn't <laughs> right yeah <laughs> thank goodness TV has gotten better since that. I mean I grew up in Chicago and I never knew anyone who had a family like the Brady Bunch or Leave It to Beaver. <laughs> right. Um, right. And and I've heard that from, from many people. And then and then the thing with it is when growing so away from that, you, you know, you didn't even, you really thought that was because you really didn't know any better. <laughs> so it wasn't even that I didn't know anybody like that. It was like I really thought somebody like that really existed, that families like that. And that and that to be an American meant that I had to become that person, right? That Or be that family. Um, so then after that, I kind of became... Um, uh, started sort of reaching into really understanding American history and reading revisionist ver- versions of history, not this, you know, the storybook uh, version that they give us in history books, or at least they gave us back then, and started becoming like really anti-American, right? <laughs> like, like sort of like, how dare you, you know, how dare this country? This is, you know, these are the ideals of my parents as immigrants believed in, and like, how, what do, why do we have such this ugly history? And then uh, I kind of sort of had to explore that. Eventually, I said, well, maybe I'm not American, maybe I'm not Cuban, maybe home is Venice or Paris or London. And I started thinking about home and belonging and place in a more cosmopolitan way uh, and a more cosmopolitan sort of take on the idea of home. Um, And that didn't quite answer my question. And so um, really it wasn't until the inauguration, uh, as I sort of mentioned briefly, that I finally felt this sense of of belonging and realizing that that my narrative is a little chubby gay kid from a working class immigrant family in the suburb of Miami and a Cuban immigrant, that that was part of the American story, right? That my mother who grew up in a dirt fuller home in Cuba, that was part of the American story. That all of our individual stories are what make up the American narrative if we think of of the very definition of democracy and our own motto of this country out of the many one. I felt finally I had arrived. <laughs> but then the story of home and belonging is, again, like you said, is very complicated. And um, when I got asked to, to write the poem for the reopening of the U.S. Embassy in Cuba and when relationships with Cuba were starting to open up, another set of questioning set in. Well, I was like thinking, well, maybe I can have finally this relationship with the island and its people in a more authentic and, and legitimate way. And, um, and that's when it hit me. I was like, all the while, uh, now I'm, by now I'm in my mid-40s, I thought I had to pick and choose. I thought I had to be either 
the Brady Bunch or Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> and I realized I don't have to pick. This is we're living in a world where you don't have to pick anymore. You don't have to choose one or the other. We are all these things and we are connected. It's part of what uh, How to Love a Country speaks to also is to let go of all those sort of inherent, those, those kinds of boundaries and walls we put around ourselves to think, well, what is an American? I mean, what's the difference? You know, what does that really mean? You know, like, are we just citizens of the world? And, and to think beyond the boundaries of nationhood and patriotism and those kinds of things. So um, that's where I'm at now. I'm sort of embracing the idea of looking at myself as a global citizen who can adapt and, um, and take on and, and incorporate whatever it is that I feel I uh, belong to. Hey, if a river shouldn't have boundaries, why should you? Right, exactly. <laughs> Richard, you spoke about civic responsibility. Ultimately, what do you think is the role of a poet? One thing that I've always adhered to was the idea of the poet as emotional historian, that um, in some ways my job is to record the emotional history uh, or histories of what it is like to live in a time and in a place. And then so ultimately a poem is about connecting to an emotional core of some of some kind and giving giving real names, real lives, real faces to these social political issues that can get very abstracted. And I think when, when a poet bothered like something like the river, you know, that's a new way of thinking about something because it's giving a voice to something that isn't this, the same old 24-hour newsreel sound bites, right? What I try to do with my poetry is uh, to open up another conversation, uh, the way that art in general and poetry in particular can do, which is to look at the gray area, uh, to look at the nuances, to look at the emotional truths that, no, that people are afraid to speak of. So. I see my role as a poet as sort of a, um, not, a not as an instigator, but a, uh, a, in some ways like a, a bridge builder. Um, ironically, I'm an engineer as well, but <laughs> um, as a bridge builder to connect people to other thoughts, uh, other people, uh, other ways of thinking, other emotions that perhaps they have not, um, they have not been able to encounter and the poem becomes a catalyst. Um, I think poets and poetry, uh, you know, so much happens through our lives that we're not, we're not really consciously aware how it's affecting it, us. And I think uh, a poem makes us pause and think about something. It makes us put down the iPhone, it makes us put down the tablet, it makes us turn off the TV, and it makes us just rethink and, and, and take the time to look beyond the expected answer. And so that's what I try to do with my poetry, is to offer, offer another kind of questioning, another line of reasoning. Poet Richard Blanco teaches creative writing at Florida International University in Miami. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., playwright Pearl Clegg will tell us about engaging youth in the Alliance Theater's Collision Project, an immersive writing and theater program for teenage students. 
Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.